All right, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Page 5 of your worship guide, as usual, there's a place to take notes. Uh, there's an outline, which probably will be helpful to have, most importantly, to have the Bible open, because yeah, we're going to keep referencing uh, what I'm about to read throughout the next 40 minutes or so. Um, but the page five outline might be helpful to follow along. And then there are some reflection questions at the bottom of page five that will, will be helpful to just get more mileage out of this and for, for you to be able to reflect on those uh, and to take it home, maybe journal about it or have a conversation with your spouse or a friend. It'll, it'll help you think more thoroughly through what God is saying to us here in Colossians chapter one. I'm going to invite you to stand now as I read a really brief portion of Colossians 1, just verses 21 through 23. And I'll remind you, this is an extraordinary thing. The Bible is an active book. It's, it's living. It's unlike any other book. And so we should put our full attention on this, be fully receptive, because this is God speaking to us, believe it or not. God says, through his servants, Paul and Timothy, he says, you who were once alienated and hostile, in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Y'all can have a seat. God, we thank you for your word. You tell us very simply but very profoundly that we need this. We don't live by bread alone. We live by every word revealed to us in scripture. And we need you to open our eyes to that. We need you to give us receptivity. You're the author and the perfecter of our faith which essentially just means you are the one who creates in us an appetite for your word. And we pray that you would do that. It would be a voracious appetite. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, imagine you're chatting with a friend and they say, I have been learning a lot lately. I, uh, I'm really growing in my understanding these days. I'm reading a lot of books. I'm becoming very, very educated and enlightened. And specifically, they say, I've, I've particularly been reading lots of literature about the earth, which you think immediately, that's significant because the earth, I mean, it's an important place. It's, it's home to all of us. And, and so we should be educated when it comes to understanding the earth. And, and they say, you know, I've just been learning so much about the earth. And you respond by saying, that's wonderful. That's great. I'm curious, what have you been reading? Tell me a little bit more. And they say, well, this, this really my favorite book, it's called Flat Earth by, by Caspian Sargenson. And it's so interesting. It's all about Satan's global plan of deception and, and exposing heliocentrism. It's all about how the world is not a globe. It's flat. Now, look, I don't mean to disrespect you or offend you if you believe the earth is flat. That's not my main point right now. Um, but I think 
we can all agree that how you grow, how you learn and, and develop an understanding, that matters, right? We can all agree that it can't just be haphazard or, or generic or indiscriminate. How, how you grow in life, that really does matter. Here's another example. Um, suppose someone says to you, I'm learning so much these days about parenting. I'm growing in my maturity and in my knowledge and understanding of parenting. And you say, that's great. That's great. Tell me more. How have you specifically grown in your, your knowledge of parenting? And they say, well, I'm, I'm discovering that uh, we should have no constraints, no boundaries for our children. That is to stifle your children, to have rules and boundaries. I, I think we should just let them do whatever they want. I, I take a very open-handed uh, position on parenting. And, and I want my children to be free to do whatever they want, whatever comes naturally. And you, and you say, well, what if they like hit their siblings or, or steal from, from the local store? You say, yes, yes, I don't want to stifle any of that. Whatever comes naturally, I want them to do whatever, whatever they feel like doing. Or, or maybe it's the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, somebody says, I'm reading all kinds of books about how I should be more heavy-handed. Not open-handed, but I should be harsh with my children. I should hover over them and micromanage them and police them all the time and punish them at every turn. And, and, and they should give, they, I should never let them make any decisions for themselves. I should never leave them alone. Be very heavy-handed. Well, obviously, in either scenario, you would be very loving. You'd be a good friend if you were to respond by saying, if you, if you proceed down those paths, you're going to alienate your children. That, that's not a healthy way to grow. Because, again, the way you grow in your understanding, the way you grow in life in general, that, that matters. And what matters most is our, our relationship with God. How we grow in our relationship with God, that's most vital. That's most central to all of our lives. And we can't approach it with generalizations or, or simply go with what feels natural to us. We have to look to God's word and ask, how do you want us to grow? I don't want to lean on my own understanding when it comes to this very crucial question, how to grow in my relationship with God. I don't want to lean on my wisdom. I want to consult what God says and trust in, in his wisdom and in his word. And so it's vital, God would say, it's vital that you grow in your relationship with him by never losing sight of this saga that is your relationship with him. This, this roller coaster ride of your history with God. Think of it like this. If you were to ask Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennett about their relationship, would they say, I don't know, you know, we met, we, we eventually fell in love, and now we're married. No, they, they would not say that at all. They'd say, oh, it was a whirlwind. <laughs> Elizabeth would say, when I first met Mr. Darcy, I hated his guts. I, I was his enemy. I opposed him. I did not like him at all. But then through a crazy series of events, all kinds of ups and downs, uh, we, we ended up together. And they'd want to tell you the story. They'd want to tell you about the saga of their history. And, and God says that too. If you read through the Bible, and we have thousands of years worth of this saga that is the relationship between God and his people. And, and that saga most substantively, most primarily is about us being led into this posture of cherishing the fact that we've been reconciled with God. Even though at so many instances we've been opposed to him and we've wandered off and we've rebelled and we've made ourselves the enemies of God. Nevertheless, 
the big main point of scripture is that God has never given up. He's never stopped. He's pursued us because he's, he's going to love us. He's going to continue in his commitment to being the covenant God in our lives. And that's, what, that's what's being emphasized here in verse 21. Look again at verse 21. Paul and Timothy are writing to the church in Colossae, and they're really emphasizing this, this history that we have with God. They say, you have to remember, you can never lose sight of the fact that y'all were once alienated from God. Don't, don't ever graduate from, from remembering that you were once alienated, and now you can cherish reconciliation because of, of that contrast. You, you were once enemies of God. You were evil opponents of God. But now, against all odds, he's your husband. He's your bridegroom. You're completely reconciled to this God. Y'all know people who have this kind of history with their spouse. I, I read recently, or I listened to on audiobook, Matthew McConaughey's uh, book, Green Lights. And at the beginning of the book, in the early chapters, he talks about his parents and their relationship, his, his dad, Jim, and his mom, Kay. And uh, I'm not going to go into all the details right here, right now, but uh, Jim and Kay's relationship was bonkers. It was so dysfunctional, so dramatic. Um, there was, there, I'll tell you one scene, one scene where his dad comes home from work and, and he just wants to sit and eat his dinner in peace, but his, his wife's talking to him and he kind of gets, he kind of gets grumpy with her. And then things, things get out of hand eventually, like she's wielding a big kitchen knife and, and it's dramatic. And, and Matthew tells that story ultimately to say, but even in the midst of that type of drama and messiness, the fact is, me and my brothers, we knew my parents loved each other. And they always, as much as they sinned against each other, they always worked it out. Like, they loved each other so much. And I'm not endorsing all the things that, that were wrong or bad about the relationship. But what I am mesmerized by is this profound love that they maintained that relationship. And they genuinely loved each other, even in the midst of all of that wreckage. That's the kind of relationship God has with his people, honestly. Again, if you read through scripture, you see the history. It's brimming with, with that type of saga where, where we are so violently opposed to God. And it's so, it's so wretched at so many instances. And yet God continues to love his people and pursue reconciliation with them. There are stories that kind of provide a 30,000 foot overview. I would invite you later today to go read Ezekiel chapter 16, just one chapter of scripture as a favor to me. Just read Ezekiel 16 later today. And it'll give you this 30,000 foot overview of the relationship. It'll describe how God found us left for dead in this wretched condition. And he said, I, I couldn't just leave you there. I wanted you to live. And so I adopted you. I brought you into my family and I cared for you. And then he says, eventually you arrived at the age for love. And I loved you and I lavished my love on you. I had all this affection for you and you became my, my bride and I beautified you and I adorned you. But then you became conceited. You, you took my good gifts and the ways that I had adorned you and you became proud of yourself and you went after other lovers. And, and there's this whirlwind of a relationship where we've run away from God and chased other gods. And he says, it's heartbreaking, it's gut-wrenching. And yet, by the end of the chapter, God says, but it didn't kill the relationship because I was adamant 
about reconciling us. I was adamant about never stopping in my love for you. So that's kind of a 30,000 foot overview. Then there are episodes that get more granular, more detailed. Like, you know, you parachute out of the plane, you, you go down and you get boots on the ground details. And, and the basic underlying reasons as you get more particulars and you get more details, the underlying reasons for our hostility and our alienation, you come to discover that the two main threads of hostility are self-indulgence and self-righteousness. What gives rise to our hostility and our alienation well, it's, it's rooted in our self-indulgence or our self-righteousness. So some specific stories in Scripture. I'll just cite two for the sake of time. An instance of self-indulgence would be the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in the, uh, the book of Daniel. He is a very comprehensive picture of self-indulgence. I mean, King, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's sitting on all these resources. He can kind of do whatever he wants, and, and he does. He just follows his... his his desires, wherever they lead. He just does whatever's right in his own eyes. And it's interesting because on the one hand, or on the surface, you'd look at Nebuchadnezzar and you'd say, well, he seems to be growing in his understanding of God. Like he conquered the, the Israelites who are the, the people of the only true and living God. And he hasn't just destroyed them. I mean, he invaded, he conquered as the instrument of God. And then he incorporated some of the people of God into his, into his government. Like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He didn't, he didn't destroy them. He, he employed them. And he seemed you know, somewhat friendly or at least tolerant of them. And so you could look at that and say, well, Nebuchadnezzar, he's growing in his relationship with the only true and living God. But as you go along in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, you see God says, no, Nebuchadnezzar, we have a very fundamental reconciliation issue. And ultimately, God would say, I love you too much, Nebuchadnezzar, to, to allow you to continue along in this just have me as part of your pantheon of God's arrangement. I insist that we be fully reconciled. And so he sends this emperor. I mean, picture like, you know, Joe Biden or... Donald Trump, I mean, I'm not picking on either one, just picture like the head of our nation being driven out into the wilderness and living like a wild animal for a season. That's what God does to Nebuchadnezzar. He does that. I, I've actually, this is no joke, I've written letters to U.S. presidents, you know, at the White House telling them like, hey, heads up, this may happen to you. I did. And I don't know if that has me sort of flagged in some way, but I was like, this is, this is what I do. My job is to read the Bible and tell people about what I read. And if I'm supposed to honor you as my president, I just think you should know. Because he's done this to other world leaders in the past. And that's what he did. And why did he do it? Because he, he, he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know, look, we have a reconciliation issue. Nebuchadnezzar, you can't just, just kind of have me as a, a sort of a bolted on addition to your life. Like we have to deal with your heart. And, and you have to fully repent and be re reconciled to me. And so I'm going to force you into a posture where we do business like that. On the other end of the spectrum, that's self-indulgence. What about self-righteousness? I'd say Jonah is a great example of this. Jonah, like the Pharisees in the New Testament, uh, he would claim that he's growing in his relationship with God. He'd say, oh, I'm a prophet. I've read the Torah. Probably have vast portions of it memorized. I'm, I'm growing in my maturity and my theological understanding. And yet, when you read the details of the story 
of Jonah, you see God would say, Jonah, for as much as you have an academic understanding of the Torah and as much as you would claim that you're growing in your relationship with me, there is a fundamental obstacle. And we discover that Jonah is actually not in a good relationship with God. He is, in fact, hostile toward God and God's agenda. He is actually estranged from God. And so God forces him to see we have a reconciliation issue, Jonah. You think you're promoting my kingdom, but you're not. And we have to deal with that. We have to deal with your heart, Jonah. And I have to force you to see that I am a God who loves to show mercy to sinners. Not just the Ninevites whom you hate, Jonah, but but you. You yourself need to receive and cherish my desire to be fully reconciled to you. To lavish my mercy on you. If you crossed paths with Nebuchadnezzar or Jonah after their, their sort of repentance experiences or one day if you go to heaven you'll you'll cross paths with Nebuchadnezzar and Jonah in heaven I believe and if you strike up a conversation with them and ask them about these these stories we have about them I think they will say what essentially is being described to us in verse 22 I think they will say I have so much joy and freedom to tell you I was so pig-headed and wrong I was so wrong but nevertheless as wrong as I was, as, as much of an enemy of God as I was, with, with a smile on their face, they'd say, against all odds, God reconciled me to himself. I'm, I'm, sa- I'm reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. And now, believe it or not, God presents me to himself completely holy and without blemish, utterly free from any and all accusations. That's incredible. That's the freedom that we have when we cherish this reconciliation that God has created between us and himself. And Nebuchadnezzar and Jonah, they would go on to say, you know, my contribution in all of that, other than obviously I contributed a lot of sin, my job, my my responsibility in the relationship with God was to simply receive. To receive the unmerited favor, to receive the free, lavish, scandalous gift of God's love, his insistence on being reconciled to a sinner like me. Radical receptivity. Let's go back to that example of, uh, of Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy, for example. If, if, you asked, if you asked Elizabeth, hey, what did, what did you receive when you and Mr. Darcy eventually worked things out and got together? Well, would she say, would she say well, I, you know, I received forgiveness. Well, that's partly true. I mean, she, she, she really didn't give him the benefit of the doubt. Like, she chose to villainize him and, and give him no credit. I mean, at first, she was just sour and opposed to Mr. Darcy. So she might say, you know, it was nice of him to forgive me. Would she say, you know, and then in addition to forgiveness, he gave me, he gave me a handshake and said, let's be friends. Well, no, I mean, Mr. Darcy does not want to be put in the friend zone. He, he hates the idea of being merely friends. So what did she receive? Well, she received a proposal of marriage. <laughs> After all that animosity and hostility, Mr. Darcy says, I, I just, I want to marry you. I, I, I have to marry you. You're my treasure. I, I want to be your husband. And if you're the wife of Mr. Darcy, uh, you are the co-heir of a very lavish estate. <laughs> 
So, so Elizabeth would say, I married this man and I became an heir to like his empire. I went from being his enemy to being an heir of this empire. And I went from being opposed to this man to being incandescently in love with this man. And that's like us and God. Let's ask it this way. We, we see this language in here about holiness and blamelessness, being without blemish and beyond reproach. Let me ask you all this. What's your picture of those themes? Like what paradigm do you by default operate with when you hear words like holiness, blamelessness, being above reproach, being without blemish? I think we can all agree that we should allow Jesus most primarily to define what those words mean. And, and primarily, what, what picture comes to mind when we think of words like holiness and above reproach? We should let Jesus be the one to, to really most emphatically shape our paradigm of those words and those themes. So if that's true, if we want Jesus to define these things, first we need to acknowledge that uh, Jesus, uh, he told lots of parables. It says in the Gospel of Matthew that he never said anything without using a parable. That's what it says. And uh, you should know that the, the religious elite crowd, the Pharisees, like the theologically educa uh, educated, very like highbrow religious elite, they hated Jesus' parables. They said, these, these are so simple and childlike. This is not meaty theology. They would hear Jesus preach his parables and say, I'm not being fed here. This is not meaty theology. This is watered down. It's too simple. That's what they'd say. They were very agitated by Jesus' parables. So keep that in mind. And then, in addition to that, realize that one of Jesus' most famous parables, it's called the parable of the prodigal son, oftentimes, he really does emphasize these themes, these themes of being uh, without blemish, like no accusation, being put in a position of blamelessness and of beyond reproach. This story that he tells, one of his most famous let me remind you, it's a story of this really rotten kid, really horrible scoundrel of a kid. And this kid demands his share of the family inheritance. He says, you know, my, my dad hasn't died yet. Normally you'd get the inheritance when, you're, when your parents pass away. He says, but I'm not going to wait. I can't wait. He demands that he gets his inheritance right now. And the dad Oh, it's crazy, but the dad accommodates that. And so the kid gets all this money, his portion of the inheritance, and he runs off to do life on his own terms. Whatever's right in his own eyes, whatever he feels like doing, and he enjoys a season of self-indulgence. I think there's a season of his life where he's living it up, and if you encountered him in that season, he'd say, it's going great. I love my life. I'm doing everything that I want to do. I got the money to do it. And then uh, he crashes and he burns. He runs out of money. His life's in the gutter. His life's over and he's impoverished. And he's suffering. And so he decides that he needs to become more holy. That's what he says to himself. He says, you know, I need to get my life back on track. And here's his paradigm of holiness. You know, he says, look, I need to do better. I need to be above reproach. Obviously, I've squandered all this wealth. I'm not very disciplined. And so here's his plan. Here's his paradigm. He says, okay, I'm going to go back to my dad, and I'm just going to say, hey, look, obviously, I've burned the, the sonship bridge. I know I can't be your son anymore. But through penance 
And through me, you know, I'll walk through town for the next decade just hanging my head, looking really remorseful, and, and I'll, just, I'll just be a slave. And, and I'll just put in the time as a slave, and I'll look remorseful constantly, and I'll do penance. And then, you know, over the course of a decade or two, you know, the town will realize that, you know, they can kind of accept me back or at least tolerate me around town because I've, I've proven how sorry I am. And, and you know, that'll show, like, I've, I've grown in holiness, you know, at least in some ways, or I'm a little more above reproach because I've learned from my mistakes. So that's what he's gunning for. So he heads back and he's kind of preparing that speech for his dad. And then he gets into town and his dad runs to meet him. His dad, like, sees him coming. And, and I don't know if y'all know this, but it was very faux pas for a man in the ancient world to run. You know, like, if you were a respectable man in town, you never ran anywhere. That looked like you were out of control. You were a little too rash or hasty. So the fact that he's running through town is, is not in accordance with the codes of decorum or <laughs> rules of etiquette. But the dad doesn't care. He sees his son, this wretched, horrible kid who's squandered the inheritance. And he runs them and he hugs him. And as this kid is like beginning his, I'm going to do penance. I'm going to be remorseful for the rest of my life speech. The dad says, shut your mouth. <laughs> he tells one of the servants to get the best robe, like the family robe. And he says, put that on my son. Put the family ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet because he's not a slave. He's fully reinstated as his son. And then to top it all off, the dad says, you know what we got to do. I think we all, I think we all know what we got to do now. What? He says, well, we got a party. We got a party. And not just like a little party, like, you know, keep it modest, you know, like tea and crumpets. No, 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 no. We're going to fatten calf, you know, hire the band, just big party, feast. Like you can hear this party from a long way away kind of party. Okay, so to attend that party for the younger son, this, this guy's son who did all these wretched things, for him to attend that party, what would that be? What would be a word for that? Holiness. Because holiness is doing what God insists on you doing, right? So if the will of the Father is don't do penance, don't hang your head in remorse and look sorry all the time, but go to the party. And don't just stand in the corner and act like, oh, this is kind of overkill. I'm kind of embarrassed by this party. No, you got to dance. you got to partake of the meat and the wine. And you got to mingle with all these people in town who know what you did. That would be to embrace the truths being described here. You are above reproach. Not because of your track record, but because the father says, I have put you in a position of being above reproach. I have set you in my sight as a son, not a slave, without, without any accusation, no blemish, no blame, because that's what God says. And again, God's the one who gets to define what it means to be above reproach and blameless and holy and without blemish. Conversely, to refuse to attend the party, what would that be? Well, that would be to alienate yourself from God. That would be to set yourself in hostile, evil opposition to the will of the Father. Right? And we, we know that that's what the older brother did. The older brother who'd been waiting, you know, maybe through years of effort to, to finally get to wear that best robe that his, his punk little brother's wearing now. 
right? And he's, he's just been waiting for, you know, just a little party. Nothing crazy, just like, like a goat party. Like, just let me and my friends have a little goat, not the fattened calf, right? He just, he's been thinking about it that way. And, and because he's got this wrong view of holiness, the older brother says, I can't go to this party. That would be to endorse and enable all the bad historic behavior of my brother. And the dad says, you don't understand true holiness, you don't understand true above reproachness. Because <laughs> God says, the Father says, I define those things. And all of those things are predicated not on your performance, but on you receiving them from me. That's the fundamental difference. It's the difference between your pious performance, which is a myth, and the radical receptivity that God so audaciously and regularly and emphatically talks about in scripture. It's all about radical receptivity. And it's not a one-time thing. It's an all-the-time thing. It's a forever thing. Look at verse 23. It says, you must continue in your faith. Another word for faith is receive. Faith is receptivity. When the Bible says God is authoring faith in you, another way to think about that is God is authoring receptivity in you to receive his promises, and to radically rely on his promises rather than what you're going to do for yourself or how you're going to make something happen. God says, I want you to receive. Continue always in this way of receptivity. Don't ever move away from it. You never graduate from it. Christian maturity is not you graduating from God's grace. It's you going ever more into debt, deeper and deeper for all eternity into debt. In God's grace. Paul and Timothy say, do not move away from the hope held out to you in the gospel. And for the record, Paul and Timothy in this letter to the church in Colossae, they'll keep bringing this up. This is kind of a soapbox for them. You can glance ahead if you'd like. Verse 6 of chapter 2, they put it this way. They say, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, rooted and built up in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving. So let's pause on that. Camp out there for one second. How do people receive Christ Jesus? Because that's what they say. As you received him, so continue to walk in him. Okay, so anybody who authentically receives Jesus, what's their position in life? What's their posture? What's, what's going on with them if they are in a place of genuine receptivity? Well, they're, they're down and out. <laughs> Uh, they're super desperate. They're needy. Like they, they are totally aware of the fact that I can't save myself. Uh, I've tried. I know I can't do it on my own. And so I need Jesus. I'm desperate for Jesus. So a really clear example of that is the criminal who was crucified next to Jesus. You know, he's lived on his own terms his whole life and it's landed him on this cross. And he's looking at the evidence of his performance and he's saying it's not good. It hadn't really produced much grapefruit, I'll tell you that. And he's looking at this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and he's aware of the fact that Jesus hasn't done anything to deserve this punishment. And he's starting to put those pieces together. And in a moment of desperation, he says, Jesus, will you please remember me when you come into your kingdom? He just pleads for mercy. He's got nothing to offer all, all, he can, all he can acknowledge about himself is his neediness and desperation. And Jesus, believe it or not, says, yeah, I'll remember you. Sure. To, you know, later today, 
you and me will be hanging out in paradise. Like no follow-up question, no interview session, just sure, sure. Love, I'd love to have you in heaven with me in paradise later this afternoon. So let's, let's follow that, that storyline. Later that day in paradise, Jesus and this criminal are, are, you know, meandering around heaven. How do you think that criminal, how do you think he navigated paradise? You know, when he got there, what do you think he did? You think he got there and said, sucker, bolted. Just, I'm going to go do whatever I want now. I can't believe you let me in. No, I don't, I don't think that's what he did. I, I think he got to heaven the way you would go to like a really swanky party. Like, you know, you're just sort of a, you're not a swanky person. You don't go to big, important parties. But somebody that you know who's swanky, they invite you to a party. I think you would just stay on their hip the whole time. I think you would just cling to them and follow them wherever they go because you, you're aware of the fact that the reason I'm here is because of them. And I don't know how to navigate this environment other than just follow them around. I think that's how this guy navigates heaven. Honestly, I think he was terrified to leave Jesus' side. He's just clinging to Jesus because he realizes, apart from Jesus, I could do nothing. And so always and forever, he's going to be in this posture and in this position of receiving from Jesus, never leaving the side of Jesus. Now, maybe some of you are asking yourselves, okay, so Tyler, are you saying... That basically the Jesus training wheels never come off. Is that what you're saying? Are you saying that, that I will never ride a Christian two-wheeler all by myself? To which I would say, you have the wrong analogy. There is no such thing as a Christian two-wheeler. It's a tandem bike. It is two sets of pedals, two seats, two sets of handlebars, and you're on that bike with Jesus. The bike was never designed for you to ride it without Jesus. Jesus had an analogy for this. Bicycles weren't invented yet, I don't think. So he called it being yoked to him. He said, you're going to be yoked to me. So, you know, a yoke is, is where you got this big piece of wood and then you've got, you know, like an ox, you know, hooked into it here and an ox hooked into it here. But when Jesus used this analogy, um, you have to remember, he's always referenced us as sheep. So here's how you should picture it. Jesus says, I'm going to be the ox right, in the yoke, and you're going to be a sheep, and your hooves don't even touch the ground. You're like a dangling, helpless, just silly-looking sheep. And, and so, yeah, we're together. We're always together. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But who's doing all the heavy lifting and the strenuous pulling? It's the ox. It's Jesus. It's not this little sheep dangling in the yoke. But, but you are together. And, and God says, that's how you do life. It's not just that we were estranged and then reconciled and, and then you kind of move on. No, 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 no. You, you always receive. You always stay with Jesus. Apart from him, you could do nothing. Just to prove this to you, you know, one of Jesus' uh, good friends, one of his core group members, Peter, Peter tried to do some solo rides, you know, on the Christian two-wheeler. Uh, Peter, more than any other apostle, is on record as, is basically uh, expressing this idea that I, I can do some things myself. You know, Jesus, I can get out there and make some stuff happen. It's great that you would advise me, but I think I could make some stuff happen. You know, if you just give me a chance, I bet I can pull some things off. You'd be impressed. And what's funny about this is that Jesus would actually even allow Satan to throw a stick in the spokes of Peter's bike. Right? 
He, he would say, oh, you know, Satan has, de- has demanded to sift you, Peter, to prove to you that your, your paradigm of self-sufficiency is total myth. And I will actually allow Satan to sift you, to throw a stick in your spokes so that you fall off your bike because I love you enough to constantly remind you that you can't do it by yourself. That is complete mythology. You cannot. You have to be radically receptive to me all the time. And probably one of the most dramatic scenes in the relationship between Jesus and Peter where this, this is manifest is when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. What you've got to understand about being the foot washer back in the day of Jesus is that it was the most degrading job you could do. It, it, was, it was scandalous that, that the rabbi, that Jesus, the king, would stoop and condescend to this disgusting role of servitude. And, and Peter says, this, isn't, this, isn't in a, this is not in accord with decorum and holiness and piety. And so Peter, for what he thinks are very principal reasons, when Jesus comes to wash his feet, Peter says, no, 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 I, I, I cannot allow this. You know, you know, Jesus, you gave me the nickname Rock. His, his, his real name is Simon, but Jesus gave him the nickname Dwayne Johnson. You are a big and impressive guy. That's what Peter thought Rock meant. And so he says, so I bet you're testing me. You're here to see if I will allow you to do this. And for me to pass the test, I've got to refuse. And Jesus gets pretty aggressive with him. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, listen, if you don't let me do this, this degrading act of servitude, this debased thing, washing your feet, if you don't let this happen, we're done. That's what Jesus says. He says, you can have no part with me. You will either be radically receptive or we can't be friends. Take it or leave it. There's no middle ground. Ultimately, you have to be in this posture of radical receptivity or Jesus says we cannot have a relationship. It's all about radical receptivity. You know, when you have something as good as the gospel, because this is good news, it feels it feels very counterintuitive to us, but ultimately God says it is so good that you would always and forever receive from God this fact that he's merciful to you, that he's a God who pursues reconciliation with those who were formerly his enemies. If you have good news like that, you need to understand it's so good that the world needs to know about it. Like you, you need to share it with everyone you know. It's what... It's what we get in verse 23. It says the gospel must be proclaimed. It has to be proclaimed in all creation. Not to just one people group, but all people groups, all tribes, all languages, all nationalities. And Paul says, and we're ministers. We are all ambassadors or emissaries of this news, the gospel. The gospel is the cure. It is the cure for the worst, most deadly disease on the planet, which is the disease of guilt and shame and estrangement from God. And the gospel is the cure for that disease. And when you have the cure to a deadly disease, you don't, you don't hoard it for yourself. And you don't hide it. You hound the world with it. Even if the world puts up resistance and says, I don't, I don't know if I want that. Let me give you an example of how this, how this looks with, with some other things that we all consider to be good. There's this guy named Paul Hewson. Y'all know Paul? also known as Bono, frontman for U2. I was listening to his autobiography last year. It's called Surrender. And uh, he talks about this. In 2002, 
uh, Bono hounded Condoleezza Rice for like a year. He, he just hounded her incessantly, telling her that she needed to badger her boss, George, to get billions upon billions of dollars allocated for people in Africa to receive debt relief and AIDS med medication. Because he thought, those, those are good things. Those, those folks in that part of the world, they need debt relief and they need AIDS medication. And we need billions and billions of dollars to get that stuff to them. So eventually, after about a year, the State of the Union's coming up. Condoleezza calls Paul and she says, hey, you going to watch tonight? He says, yeah, yeah. She's like, good. I think you're going to like it. And I can't remember what the number was. I think he was asking for less than like $8 billion. And they basically doubled it. It was like 15, 16 billion. And then you know what he did? You know what Bono did after he got that good news? He realized, okay, now I have billions of dollars to go do this good work. He, he diligently worked to make sure it got applied, liberally applied to the people in Africa who needed it. And, and it should be pointed out that they didn't necessarily ask him to do it. Like he, he wasn't getting... Like everybody in Africa texting him saying, hey, please do this for us. So, so essentially, without their permission, without their consent, he invaded their continent with this really good news that we have medication for you and we have, we have debt relief for you. And that's what God says you need to do with the gospel, with the good news. And for the record, nobody really asks permission to, to publish news. Like CNN and Fox, they don't ask me before they publish whatever they're saying, right? They just put it out there. And if you want it, it's there for you to take. And God says, do that with the gospel. This is, this is part of how we grow. People are added to the number of the family of God through you telling people about what Jesus has done for you. Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he begs the question, how will people call on him, whom, him of whom they've never heard? So, so you've got to tell them. And listen, this can look all kinds of ways. Y'all remember, I know some of you don't, but some of you have been here long enough. Remember Bruce Richardson? Bruce and Susan, they moved away, but I mean, he just walked up to people. I was with him when he did it. We were walking into Target once, and he just walked up to like the first person walking out. And he said, he, he said, Tyler, hold on a second. He walked over, he goes, are you a Christian? And they, I don't remember what they said. I think they said, yes. He said, tell, can you tell me about that? Or if someone said, well, no. He said, well, can, can I interest you? In being a Christian, let me talk to you about that. We schedule a time to get coffee. That was his strategy. I don't, I don't really do it that way. For me, it, it looks more like this. Like I'll be driving somewhere with a climbing buddy. I remember one time I was driving out to Love Valley with a friend. So it's like an hour in the car, a little over that. And I remember saying, hey, look, he knew I was a pastor. And I said, hey, give me your opinion on Jesus. Like, honestly, like, what do you really think? I'm not going to give you my Christian sales pitch right now. Just tell me what you think about Jesus or about the church. And so he, he talked, and we dialogued for about 30, 45 minutes uh, about what he thought. And he said, look, I, I don't like, like superficial religiosity. I, I don't like it. I don't like pious posturing. Um, I've been burned in some ways by people who I, I think are self-righteous and they kind of snobbish theological elitists. And it was actually so refreshing to be able to say to him, Hey, you know, for what it's worth, a lot of what you're sharing about your experience with religious communities, a lot of your complaints, Jesus would share those complaints. And I would invite you, for what it's worth, to go read the Gospel of Matthew, specifically the 23rd chapter, 
and just kind of just kind of see how Jesus feels about some of the stuff you're alluding to. And my hope there is that, you know, we have to start this journey with Jesus somewhere. And so let's, let's try to find some common ground with things that we really care about, the things that matter to us. And ultimately, there will come this moment where you're going to have to encounter, like, Jesus who sees you to the bottom. He sees all of you. He totally knows everything about you. You're completely naked and exposed in his sight. And then you have to come to this place where you receive the declaration that he's not here to condemn you. He's here to pursue you, to lay down his life for you, and save you and envelop you in his love. If you have any experience with that, with the gospel, the cure for this deadly disease of guilt and shame and estrangement from God, then you take that and you invade the world with it. Incidentally, I'll tell you this, U2 is the only band that I know of to have ever put their music on people's iPods without anybody's permission. Did you know that? They did that. September 9th, 2014, people woke up and they had a YouTube album, a YouTube album on their iPod. They said, I don't, I don't remember downloading that. And that's because they didn't. They just worked with Steve Jobs to just smuggle it onto your listening device without your permission, without your consent. And whatever you think of that or whatever you think of the U2 music style, uh, let me just end with reading you some lyrics from that album. That album's called Songs of Innocence, which I think is ironic because that's what God wants us to embrace. Innocence. No, no blemish, no blame. Not because we're historically innocent, but because he declares us innocent. Here are some lyrics from that album, and these are so good. We say to God, honestly, I have scars from where I've been. I've been through some wreckage. I have scars. And God, you've got eyes that can see right through them. And what's amazing is that you're not afraid of anything your eyes have seen about my wretchedness. God knows it's not easy taking on the shape of someone else's pain. He knows it's not easy because he did it. He didn't remain aloof. Far away from our sin, he entered our sinful world and became fully, comprehensively acquainted with all of our sorrows, with all of the sinful stuff in this world. God has taken on the shape of our pain. And God, now you can see me. And because of your love, I'm naked and I'm not afraid. And I'm not ashamed. Let's pray. God, we thank you that because of Jesus, there's no condemnation for us. We are aware of the fact that there is, to say the least, a history between us and yourself. And you talk very candidly about that history in the Bible. It's, un, it's unsettling. It's uncomfortable, honestly. And yet, ultimately, you're, you're walking us into some of those unpleasant histories in order to really emphasize that in spite of all of that, you really love us. And you are adamant about being fully reconciled to us. And the bedrock of that relationship is your grace. And you authoring in us an always and forever receptivity. And so we pray that we would receive it by your grace in accordance with your authoring power. 
And that it would be such an amazing thing. It would be so enlivening to us. We would find ourselves not able to hold it in. It would be like this burning inside of us that we have to tell other people, this is what Jesus has done for me. And whether they believe that or not, that's up to you, Holy Spirit. But, but what we want is to be the, the stewards and the, the emissaries of this good news that has impacted our lives. And we pray that you would do that good work in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.